everyone. This month, we have the first half of a two-part episode covering our live performances and discussions with the ensemble Illumin. We have tons of great conversations, improvisations, and world premiere recordings of new pieces. But before we dig in, a quick technical note. Unfortunately, during our discussion with Illumin, I had a soundboard mix-up, and David Brown's mic was routed to the wrong channel, so what he said didn't get picked up. Um, fortunately, I was able to capture his responses through the other microphones in the room. It just kind of sounds like he's in a wind tunnel. So I apologize, listeners. David, I apologize for uh, making you sound like that. This happened to me on Not Movies once before, and I was really mad at myself that it happened again. But I'm going to be more careful in the future, and it won't happen again. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Sean and Dave Make Music. We are here with our guests, Illumin. We just had two very successful concerts this past weekend. Or, well, a few... <laughs> we just had two very successful concerts, what will now be a while ago. In June. <laughs> In June. So welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for Thank being you. here. Thanks for Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so we've had David Brown on the podcast before, so we'll take it for granted that you've listened to all of our episodes already, and you are probably well acquainted with, with David and his playing. Uh, you'll be fortunate to hear a bunch more of him, as well as his family ensemble. You want to introduce the rest of uh, Illumin, David? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm, I'm lucky enough to get to perform with my wife, Caitlin Watterson, who's a mezzo-soprano, and my mother, Jody Brown, who's a fabulous pianist. Thank you. I can confirm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, one and all. You're welcome. Um, and so let's, let's just talk a little bit about what we did this past weekend first. Um, or, well, let's talk about the nature of your ensemble just a little bit, and then yeah. we'll talk about the, the project that we did together and what what you're going to be hearing today on this episode. So either of you, any of you, this, just how did, how did your ensemble form and what's your sort of take on classical performance? Can I just say what the, the sort of catchphrase is that you came oh, up sure. with? So our name is Illumin and we call it classical music relit. Yeah, so you can cool make of that. Logo that is a light bulb that I didn't realize was a light bulb at first. And then <laughs> I looked at it again and I was like, oh, that makes more sense than I thought it did. Yeah, well, so our, our idea is, is to try to, in our own small way, reform the, um, the archaic nature of classical music performance practice in our own small way with our, our small following on, the, on Philadelphia's mainline. Um, but you know, we do things like, as, as you experienced this weekend, we, we try to, we prompt the audience for questions, we dress down, we don't uh, dim the lights, we, uh, but all the while we, we perform everything as it was meant to be performed, maintaining its integrity. Um, the, the goal, as I've imagined the ensemble, has kind of evolved to mean uh, appeal to those who would otherwise contend to hate classical music, maybe coming to their first classical, so-called classical concert to hear us, and also elite music professors who come to hear us as well. So that, you know, what we're doing is real, but it's also not stuffy. Yeah, I think that's a, a very admirable goal and a, a difficult thing to accomplish. Um, and I think you're doing a lot of things right to, you know, uh, to serve that goal and to accomplish it. Um, it, it. It's interesting hearing you say that the guy that I invited to that first concert who uh, 
came and was super excited. He was, you know, not, he's someone who I knew, who I invited because I knew he had mentioned, you know, appreciating classical music before, but he's not what I would think of as a new music lover by any means. And he was so thrilled with, with the sounds that he heard. And, you know, that, that concert was nothing like he had ever heard before. And, and I think that's really cool that, you know, we can appeal to a layman and we can also appeal to ourselves. (laughs) Who have been, you know, so immersed in the new music world for a long time, and we're—I mean, we're a tough audience ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so the the fact that we were able to pull off a concert of music that we all enjoy, it I think, is a feat in itself. Yeah. <laughs> the first improvisation you're going to hear today is the first one that we improvised at the first of our concerts, and uh, the audience gave us some suggestions for this. They decided they wanted to hear a rainy improvisation in the key of C with the piano as the lead instrument. Next up, we've got another improvisation from our first concert. This one, uh, the audience suggested that we play in the style of reggae, which I must admit we were pretty surprised by. We tried to prepare for the weirdest thing that somebody could throw at us, but we weren't expecting this. Uh, It was a good surprise, though. I think we held our own, and the lead instrument that they decided on was drums. The key they chose was F sharp.
just a question, uh, especially because we've talked with Dave before on a good bit about the ensemble. Um, Jody and Caitlin, if you guys can speak to, um, with your ensemble, um, what do you, because especially we were talking about the ensemble is kind of different in performance than most traditional concerts. What do you get from performing with this group, whether it's through the instrumentation or the rep that you choose, that you don't really get that same fulfillment from other places? So what, what itches that scratching, so to speak? So, okay, this is Jody. Um, and I have to say that I veered off from my classical music training and playing life long, long ago and had bands and played by myself, did a lot of piano bars and all that kind of stuff, did some musical theater. So I did a whole lot of non-classical music things and was drawn back into it by David, my son. Um, and it was a really appealing idea to get to work with my family members who are incredibly talented and fun to work with. So um, I have to say that I, what I get out of it is just so much joy and I'm discovering things about my musicality and about classical music itself that I never appreciated as a younger person. So it's kind of taken me to places I had not been before and I'm you know, at my at the ripe old age of I won't tell you what I, I feel I feel like I'm really expanding my horizons and that there are a lot of horizons still to expand toward. That's great. And that's refreshing to hear from someone who is a lifelong musician. I have, you know, I have a lot of adult students who are just like finding that passion in, in like just starting a new instrument in their you right. know, elder years. And it's, it's really cool to see them like discovering this whole new world. And it's really refreshing to hear you who have been playing music and discovering things your whole life. Now there's still so much to be passionate about and, you know, so explore. Much. And that's really cool. Thank you. Uh, well, I would echo a lot of what you said um, in terms of getting to work with family and make music. It's just, you know, so rewarding. Um, but I, I remember um, when the idea was first sort of pitched to form the group because I had just been um, doing numbers post grad school auditions and realizing that I really couldn't afford to go to grad school. And I was feeling really bummed about it. And I was sort of in between, you know, like post-college and pre-professional, you know, performing world. And David and I were just sort of, you know, uh, walking down the street and, and he just said, well, you know, why can't we keep performing? And I, I didn't have an answer to that question. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we started uh, brainstorming and, and putting some ideas together and that, you know, ultimately uh, wound up forming the group. So... And it's it's been amazing. I mean, I, I think the the kind of rep that we have found and that we've sort of made work for our ensemble has been really interesting. Um, a lot of composers I'd never heard of before and, you know, sort of getting to, uh, you know, hear some of David's works for us that have either been, you know, newly created or reworked has been really, really fun as well. Neat. I, I remember this is probably from David I don't know when the last time we talked about this was, but I thought I remembered when you were mentioning this ensemble um, that there was a piece that you guys discovered that was like the score was barely there. It was a European composer or something yeah. that? Yeah, this this was. Oh, now I hope I can remember what it was um, because this was this was this was for our friend. We did a, a concert water. series called uh, Elemental National, and we tried to make um, um, a par draw parallels between 
the classical elements, earth, air, fire, and water, and four major European hubs of classical music. Um, uh, we had so it was it was Spanish fire, German earth, Italian air, and French water. And it was it was for uh, the French water concert. I mean, actually, some like the German Earth concert was super uh, involved, super familiar repertoire. Like, like there was Schoenberg and Bach and Beethoven, and and Schoenberg was ac- is actually Austrian, but you know, we, it, it was a great <laughs> same same right idea. Same region. <laughs> it represented the the Germanic uh, evolution, um, but but the the French concert was really obscure. Um, I mean, we could have gone. The, I mean, we, there was some Debussy. There was. Um, uh, the Chausson poem, but but I found a number of ch- a couple of chamber works that were actually originally for our ensemble, and it led us to. Oh, and now uh, I'm, I can't. Oh, can either of you recall? I can that? picture the music. I can hear I it. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not remembering. Cause, but it, yes, it was basically it was it was the product of of some research where I found um, like a, e- yeah either a partial score or an illegible score in a book. Um, was that, it a woman that, composer? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, which we should be champion, championing, championing even more, even yeah. better than you know my inability to remember. It was actually a pretty short piece, but it was uh, it was just so exciting to find something that was originally for violin, voice, and piano. Anyway, yeah, um, that's a treasure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. Right. Which has been kind of another fun uh, facet of our group because we all pl- there's we could easily put on a concert, give us any theme, and there's enough art song. Uh, solo piano and un- either unaccompanied or violin and piano sonata uh, <laughs> repertoire, but but there's almost nothing for the three of us together. So on one hand, we can play all these great masterworks, and on the other hand, we can also champion a new genre, so to speak. Yeah. Awesome. Have you had any um, <clears throat> any interest or like in people saying I want to? F- form this type of ensemble or the works that you've created for this ensemble have they had any other performances anywhere or anything like that well i that's kind of the hope um you know something i'd like to do is put together uh an actual compendium of sheet music that we've compiled that i've arranged that um you know and then include that's a cool idea. uh you know our our fingerings and bowings and translations, and so we you know it's it's our addition, and it's also music that people wouldn't find anywhere else. Certainly not altogether. Yeah, yeah, that's a cool idea. Um, do you do you publish your music in general that you write for other ensembles as well? Um, not formally. I mean, okay. I, you know, I it's 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 a blessing and a curse about about our field that. Um, Nobody is champing at the bit to uh, buy it. To well, well, I was going to say to steal it. Unfortunately, I was going to say to steal it, but that's true as well. That's that's the curse part. Um, you know, it's it's the same thing with copywriting. You know, you you put the copyright symbol in your name at the bottom of the score. It's as good as you know as legally copywriting the work because, again, it's not so high in demand that you really have to worry. And, I, and my hope for. Over a decade now, I've consulted with with uh, more experienced composers. Should I be doing that? I'm like, don't worry about it. I've never done it. It's not really, hey, you know, it's 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 more of a headache. It's you know, so so so. The short answer is no. The, the first time you get ripped off, it's a compliment. And if the, exactly. and if the second time ever happens, <laughs> yeah. it's a good way to be. 
Next up, we've got a composition entitled Opposite Day. This is by David Brown, performed by Illumin, and I'll let him tell you a little bit more about it. When composers learn to set text, they learn to, to, to text paint, to try to depict the text through musical ideas. And I thought it'd be really funny to, to uh, opposite text paint and set music, or set text to music that absolutely opposed the ideas being expressed in the text. Uh, the, first, the, the, the first movement that I, uh, of which I, I conceived was the um, was Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo, which is the third movement. I just thought it would be really funny to set a dopey children's rhyme to the most deep and profound music. And so I looked for a bunch of texts that I could set to music that was not at all descriptive of the text. The first one is an Emily Dickinson poem, uh, where you go and you're looking for jolly texts, uh, lighthearted. I looked for, I actually, I literally, I looked for the text with the most grisly and dark language I could find. Uh, I felt a funeral in my brain. It is set to, well, I'm not going to tell you much about it. You can, you can, you can guess. Uh, the second movement is Robert Burns' uh, A Red, Red Rose, which is one of the most, one of the sappiest love poems of all time. Then it's in the and it uh, concludes with the preamble to the United States Constitution.
So let's talk a little bit about each of uh, Jody and Caitlin's backgrounds musically as well, since we've already heard David's a little bit. You, we, you can fill us in briefly, but uh, you should go back and listen to our episode two to get the full story. Two? two or three? Two no, or episode three. Three? I think it's episode three. Yeah, whichever one that says David Brown on it. I think it's three. You can find I, it. I'm pretty I sure it's three. I felt that by the time I came to record that one with you, I was pretty well accustomed to your show, so it must have been three. Yeah, I think it was three. Because we did one solo, one with I'm Lama just, Lama. I'm going to pull up the... Oh, yeah, Lama Lama was number two. That was, they were our first physical guests in the... Yeah. So, Jody, tell, tell us a little bit about your musical background and um, how you've, you know, kept it fresh and still enjoyed it this long. Okay. Um, so I started taking piano lessons at the age of three. Oh, my God. Ridiculous wow. as that is. Were there, your parents performers? Not at all. Not at all. But um, there, there's a little Mozart story that my mother used to like to tell about how my brother, who was three years older than I am, was struggling and struggling with his piano music and that I would sit down after he'd get up you know, wiping sweat from his brow, <laughs> and I'd just play his songs. Now, I am sure there's some exaggeration in that story. I don't remember these times. I do remember fiddling around on the piano a lot and that I could pick out tunes. Like, I loved the Nutcracker as a little girl. I can mm -hmm. remember finding those tunes on the piano, and there just happened to be a piano teacher next door in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Oh, how convenient. How convenient. And so um, my mom was able to send me next door with my, like, I think it was $3 or $6 for the, <laughs> the half-hour oh lesson or whatever it was. Yeah, something wow. like that. Um, Julia Johnson wait, was there, and she, she later stated that she would never again take a three-year-old as a piano student. <laughs> so you can imagine how this all went. I was I wanted nothing to do with reading notes. I didn't want to play what anybody wanted me to play. I still have some of that. <laughs> That's a demon I fight with to this day. But um, so yeah, I just it just went from there to she finally had enough of me and passed me off to this an LSU professor, this Israeli guy who is still a performing pianist. You can Google him, Jonathan Zock. And it, it, we moved from state to state. We moved to Connecticut, and I studied at. Um, with you know wherever we went, there was a Juilliard person who was who became my teacher, um, and so when it came time to go to college, I went to LSU and studied piano not very seriously. I soon became involved with a female singer who was a lot like Liza Minnelli-ish, and she and I became like a hot duo in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. <laughs> and then I had bands after that, and. Um, some years later, I was I was a solo act and occasionally working with other musicians. Did a lot of piano bars. I played in a Fausto's Piano Bar in the Hyatt Regency in Dallas, Texas. And at the top of the tower, if you ever watch the show Dallas and you see the there's a, a globe on top of a pedestal, I played up in there. Um, so a lot of nightclubs and restaurants and that kind of stuff. Um, the Tropicana Casino, that's right. And then when I had children in my 30s, uh, it became important to kind of move a little bit more in the classical direction again because I wanted them to have that. So um, I started to revive some of my classical music. David has some, I think, memories of me playing playing some classical piano and trying to get my classical chops back. And and now I'm just really invested in doing the work I probably should have done all those years. I was traipsing from nightclub <laughs> to whatever. And uh, yeah, it's but it, I also taught music for 20 years and I'm still a piano teacher. So I've had a lot of things, different things going on to keep me interested in playing music. And because I started so young, I just think it's 
in my bones, mm -hmm. and the playing the piano is is like brushing my teeth. Improvising. That and makes improvising. so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you have perfect pitch as well as David, right? Yes. Did your brother? Curious. No. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the room would be emptied when he would start to sing or, or do anything musical. Okay. I, I so think your mom's story is starting to like sound more plausible to me. <laughs> I think it's possible it my right. sister might have had it, but didn't stay. Uh, unfortunately, she lived in my shadow, and um, so she never stayed with music long enough for us to discover what what talents she may have had. But yeah, there was. I think there was a generation skipped. My mom mm. talked about her. A, her uncles who one had a music store and that they would all get to get there were many many uncles and they would all get together and make music together on a Saturday night and uh, one tune pianos by ear or something one like tune that. yeah oh, wow. there were all That's sorts crazy. of stories of music and I from my dad's side his his mom wrote the Mississippi Legionnaires this was the state song up until the 1970s wow and she was a piano teacher as well so they're a, two, a generation back from me. I was the lone musician of my generation. Oh, okay. And uh, then, thankfully, the, the next generation <laughs> to come along took it from there, and yeah. it's been quite an you impressive... You did well carrying it on. Thank you. Thank um, you. Just curious, another thing about Perfect Pitch, was that something that you like realized at, at three? Was it developed at, at that point that you know, like you could clearly pick out tunes better than your brother and or do you think it was because you started so early that you kind of developed at that point I think it was a combination of things but I, I recently told David the story that I recalled that confirmed the, the day that it was confirmed that I had perfect pitch it was really funny my grandparents lived in Manhattan and our vacation a family vacation meant a trip to New York City so um and I'd been making up tunes and you know arranging them and playing chords and all that stuff mm -hmm. For as long as I could play, and but how my, old were you at this point? Um, this might have seven or eight, maybe. Um, my mom had arranged through some network of people who, you know, she had said my daughter is a genius, <laughs> so you gotta, you know, please help me out because the world will not be okay if she's not discovered. So anyway, <laughs> she found a Juilliard professor, and I remember going to Juilliard and sitting in this. I was at Curtis recently for a memorial service, and it, for some reason it brought this memory back of being in this guy's studio in a, a high-rise, um, and he at some point, he listened to me play, and at some point he told me to walk away from the piano, and he was playing notes and chords and stuff and asking me what the pitches were. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it was determined that I did, in fact, have perfect pitch, and I got ice cream afterwards, which was really all <laughs> I cared about. <laughs> Awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Caitlin, how about you? Um, well, so I, I didn't get um, a sort of formalized instruction um, as quite as young, um, mostly because uh, music was always kind of my sister's thing. Um, Your sister's I, two years older? She's two, yeah, two, about two years older. Also has perfect pitch. Made for some very interesting uh, experiences growing up because we used to love to sing together. And uh, when she was young, she used to tell me, because I would inevitably modulate and be singing like maybe a half step higher, and she would tell me, you're singing out of tune. And my mom was really offended by that. She's like, no, she's not. And <laughs> it was later determined that I was singing in a different key. And uh, later on, I would, get, I would get so indignant that I would continue to sing in that wrong key, and Kirsten would continue to sing in the correct key. And we'd be like, <laughs> maybe. We'd be really, really uh, making awful sounds together and actually come to think of it. But um, 
I, I sang in, my mom is a, a music teacher and a church choir director. Her dad and mom were music teachers and church choir directors. My dad's mom is a pianist. Um, so music uh, runs in the family and a lot of, um, a lot of them all went to Westchester for music, in fact. In fact, my grandmother's sister also went to Westchester and she was also a mezzo-soprano. And um, so I, I started taking voice. I, you know, I sang in, you know, children's choirs and church choirs and, um, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, but uh, it wasn't until I was like 15 that I actually had my like very first private voice lesson. And uh, I really, really liked it. But I think I was always still sort of in my sister's shadow and not thinking I could, you know, you know, that's Kirsten's thing. And um, I actually began at Westchester as a history major um, because I thought that, you know, if I went into music, music was definitely something I thought about. But I thought if I went into music, then everyone would just think I went into music because my family was all involved in music. And I knew within like the first week of <laughs> classes that I was in the wrong major. <laughs> And, That's good. I'm uh, glad you realized early. <laughs> I did. I realized early. I changed majors that that I auditioned for the music program that semester. And uh, how'd it go? Um, well, you made it in. Well, yeah, I, I did. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> um, it was it was fun. I uh, it made for a, a very busy um, college experience because I wanted to still graduate on time, and I was. Uh, dual majoring in vocal performance and music education. So I was constantly taking the summer sessions to like catch up and like make sure I, you know, fit in enough classes and everything. Um, and, uh, you know, post undergrad, um, you know, auditioned for graduate schools and I uh, was accepted at Peabody in Westminster. And when I was crunching the numbers with David, we just realized that there was like no way we could take on that kind of debt. And it was really upsetting. And, um, eventually decided not to go. And, uh, you know, that's sort of where the idea behind Illumin was born. And we thought, well, what if we, you know, started performing together? That was not something we'd done a lot of before. And it was, you know, obviously a lot of fun and uh, a, a seemingly good idea since we're all still here. And, um, like <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody made any and um, I, uh, I, you know, worked as a church choir director for several years and, you know, teaching a lot of private lessons currently. Uh, I sing with a bunch of, uh, of the choirs in, uh, in Philly. And um, I think that's it. That's in addition to... Yeah, that's true. Well, and you, you uh, composed for them and played as well. This summer and actually just... Uh, just over a month, we'll be in Vidin, Bulgaria, where you're going to sing with the Vidin Sinfonietta. So, exciting things. Oh, very, very exciting. Yeah, I love the whole DIY ethos of your group. It's yeah. I, I come from a punk rock background where it's very DIY. It's all the same kind of thing. It fits right in. I like it. I love it. <laughs> the next piece we're going to present is one that we improvised from a text that was suggested by an audience member. Caitlin uh, chose a text. There were a bunch that were submitted, and the one she chose was Old Men, Old Friends Sit on a Park Bench Like Bookends. And here's how we interpreted it.
For our final improvisation of the episode, we've got another one where Dave leads on percussion, djembe in this case, and the mood is frolicsome, which is an adjective that I really like. The key that we're playing in is A. Little bit about uh, a little bit more specifically about uh, the concerts, and uh, I wanted to say, like, is there anything you know? We're gonna play some clips from the concert of us talking about our pieces as well. Is there anything you wanted to say, you know, about your piece, or anything that you didn't say at the concert that you wanted to, you know, highlight or anything like that? The listeners of our podcast will not have a mobile listening guide, although we should mention that it'll still be up, right? We can. I can absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Keep that yeah. up. We can uh, send the link on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll send the link and we'll mention it now for those of you listening. Go to illuminmusic.org slash listening dash guide. I'll, I'll keep that link up. Uh, Great. Just just like that. So that so that I think it can be found easily. Um, yeah, I well, the, fir- the first night that we we that we actually technically premiered my piece. Um, I, I choked up and don't really remember what I said. The, the piece was, was a sentimental one, is a sentimental one about the passing of my, well, not about the passing, but about my grandparents, my mom's parents, who, who passed away just over a, a year, um, uh, within just over a year of each other. Um, my grandmother just passing away this, this past February. And uh, so, so truth be told, I don't remember precisely what I said the first night. Or even the second thing, <laughs> but, it, but it's, I mean, basically the crux of the piece is that it's um, it is uh, all it's constructed around this poem that I wrote uh, that that uses the chiming mechanical clocks they used to collect as an allegory for themselves, their voices, and the family of, of music that grew around them, um, and and this was uh, it, it. The idea came came to me when I was. Playing with this steel tongue drum that Dave plays in this in this performance, um, that is a con 
vex steel drum, unlike the Caribbean steel drum, which is concave and has a very brash sound. This has a very mellow uh, tone, and it sounds a lot like one of the clocks, and in fact, the one that, that we inherited and that chimes on our wall now. Um, and, uh, and that's probably, that's probably as much I context. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I, I probably explained um, enough enough context to the audience. And the, there are a lot of, one thing I don't think I said much about was that there are a lot of specific references in that piece to not just various clock chimes. Um, for instance, I, I do mention that, that the Westminster chime is is the, the prevail, like the, the, the most um, um, oft-repeating um, uh, motivic uh, gesture, but but there are some other Easter eggs, if you will. To, for instance, there's a oh, yeah, there's, there's there's a brief there are two brief contrapuntal moments um, that, that that almost shamelessly fuse to to uh, two different ideas uh, as one. The first of which um, is the the last movement of Bach's second orchestral suite, which is uh, which features the flute. Uh, it's four solo flute and orchestra that my that I it's a it's a piece that that all. Early, almost all. I probably all. I, you could speak to this. All flute, early flute players learn. I would play. say most. Yeah, and and, I, and my cousin, who was a flute player, played this piece around the same time that my cousin, who was a violinist, played the the reading violin concerto, which is a student violin concerto, all in the first position uh, in B minor. Uh, it's a beautiful piece. I still listen to it all the time. It's like maybe seven minutes long with all movements together, and it's and it's just the melodies are just so beautiful. So there's a there's there's like a maybe a two measure passage where the flute and violin are each playing slightly um, augmented versions of, alter, slightly altered versions of these, these melodies in counterpoint. And then another moment later in the piece, uh, the very senti sentimental moment after the point in the poem, uh, during which um, you, know, you realize the mood is, is darkening, sombering a little bit, because uh, becoming a little more somber, because you know, clearly this is about loss. And, um, uh, and you hear two songs, each of which respectively represent, are supposed to represent my grandmother and grandfather um, uh, playing the piano as a piano solo, the right Can hand. Can I say it. what it is? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so the, you, I'm sure you heard Edelweiss in that, when, in 4-4. Four, four. It's not, it's sort of an unexpected way to, ha to have played it because it, it's in three in the Sound of Music, but it's Edelweiss. And underneath that, you would never find it unless it was directly pointed out to you, is a little bit of Kenny Rogers' The Gambler <laughs> against the Edelweiss melody, which was my dad's favorite song. So Edelweiss was my mom's favorite song, and The Gambler was my dad. So David very cleverly wound them in there where you would least expect such a thing to happen. Yeah, that's so cool. And and the way you constructed your piece, and at least the way you sort of described it to us when, when we were first learning it to capture what you know, the essence of what you were trying to do and convey that, um, you know, you described it, I think, as sort of just like you're wandering around this empty house and the sun is shining through the window. Sometimes there's ch clocks chiming and um, there's all this stuff happening. I, I have never been in that house, but as we were performing it, I was getting these different flashes of images that were so apparently cool. created by my mind. I don't know. Uh, either I was that or I was having premonitions of, <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's, um, nothing, like, there's nothing more exciting for me to hear them. Cool. Yeah. And there, there were so many cool moments and you did, I mean, so much with, with mixing of, you know, the different 
uh, timbres of the instruments and different tonalities and polyrhythms and things like that. It was really, I felt like captured what you were going for really well. And, you know, you're in this sort of empty house that's chaotic with memories in a way. That's, that's a, really a good way to put it. Take on it. Yeah, because I, I actually imagined the piece, the bookends of the piece, like it's, it's very, it's very energized, it's very joyous and exciting and rhythmic, and I'm kind of imagining the scene, the scenes of, of my, and when I was writing, I was just thinking about, this is my family, this is being in, like an eight-year-old kid running around in the basement, which was the playroom of this house with mm -hmm. all my cousins, and then the second verse is like that, the second verse of the poem, second stanza is, is like, that's where, that's where that's the more static section, but I now hearing you describe it, it's it's like it is it, it is almost the whole thing is kind of memory. It is chaotic with memories. It's I I guess the lines are, are always kind of blurred, maybe because of I don't know. I always kind of blurred about what what is what is what I'm what I'm trying to literally reference and what I'm referencing as memory. And there is a line in the poem, um, um, you know, uh, the, basically suggesting that I'm not sure whether uh, what I'm what I'm describing as a memory or a dream, because I've had I've had I've had dreams about about that. I spent so much of my of my childhood there. I've had dreams about this place. I feel like I have memories of this place before I existed, which I don't obviously don't believe. But I mean, I, I, I can I almost I feel like I can see this house um, before it was the way it was when I knew it when I was alive. Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to describe, but that's sort of what I was trying to convey. Yeah, cool. I think that comes across. Thanks. Was there anything about... I mean, I'm beautifully warm in section, kind of the way you were saying about the different images. For me, the main colors... <clears throat> excuse me. It goes through a lot of different places, but, like, I just constantly, my mind's eyes, just, like, a lot of reds and oranges in these, like, yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> just for... Um, once again, I can't even point to a specific part in the music from, like, Lord knows what the rehearsal number was, but, like... I remember the spot where I'm doing fours in the space of threes, and it just yeah, yeah. blossoms, and it's yes, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if you got that A, to, yeah, the ninth. Poor Dave had to learn a brand new instrument <laughs> to make this piece work. I was just, actually one thing I wanted to make sure I noted. So that I always wanted to try that instrument. So this was a wonderful opportunity. Uh, but the other thing that I was amazed about was that. Um, there are undoubtedly like writing for an instrument that's brand new to you. Like there are some spots where it's like it's a little bit of a, um, a maze wandering around finding where the notes go and how to make the stickings work. But then there were some where just, it was amazing. Cause it would go from spots where I'm like writing in stickings of like a lot of, you know, doubles and moving around to all of a sudden spots where it just locks in, where it's just, you don't even need to think like naturally what your hands would want to do just work beautifully. Um, I remember that three, eight pattern that every time it would deep, dip down that whole pattern just lays effortlessly. That's like so much fun to play that. And there's a couple spots where really just, it was great. Cause once you can dip into that flow with it, it really is so much fun. <laughs> and that was probably a contrast of sections that I played and thought sounded really good and sections I imagined and thought, Dave's a percussionist, he'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he'll be able to do it. Well, that's, and the, the thing is laid out in such a, um, I, it makes sense why they, they laid it out the way it is, but it's not... Um, it's not intuitive, yeah. yeah. Only because like the the lowest frequency is right in front of you, and then the next two sequentially are at like the three o'clock and nine o'clock positions. Yeah. So um, you can do a lot of right, left, right, left, but it's really like center of the uh, center in front of you, then the sides, then moving to like 
what would that be, like seven and five, then yeah, jumping yeah, to wow. two and ten, and so you're moving kind of up and down. It's yeah, I'm gesturing. This is pointless on a podcast <laughs> gesture, um, but yeah, it's a really interesting layout. So there are some things though that like really work beautifully and so like when you find those spots it's just so much fun it's the three eight one for me always stuck out because that's one that no matter how much i might be sweating through a section when that phrase would come back again and you changed it around like sometimes it was with the time and sometimes i was the poly rhythm going against it and every time i was like oh yes all right here we go just lay back (laughs) you know just just enjoy also exciting to hear because those those moments also represented sort of those those more uh ethereal yeah, Dreamlike, they just float uh, sections, you yeah. know, like like on, on on the word beautiful, and actually that's that's where it happens, uh, where those extended passages happen, mm-hmm. where you know in the first in the first line of the poem, the first stanza, it's, it's describing, um, you know, the the basically the family as 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 a, a beautiful thing, and then later in the piece, it's describing the descendants of this family as as beautiful and and that's and that's where there's this this uh, you'll hear it in the recording this this uh, you'll, you'll you'll hear dramatic shifts between um, common time and and three eight and um, and you hear like hints of it hints of it and then there we are for an extent for a full phrase before transitioning back into and it, and that's it's it's almost like uh, I don't know what it's like. It's it, it was an unfiltered compositional process. It's what I it's 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 it, that's actually something I definitely experienced in a dream. Like that that texture hmm. and and the and the contrast between the two going back and forth. And I I couldn't have imagined. Um, at first, I couldn't imagine how to how to actually pen that to paper. Um, and I'm so pleased with how it turned out. And that is entirely to the credit of the performers. <laughs> I don't know about that, but <laughs> that silence is definitely You're sitting with four painfully modest people here, by the way, not just two. I think they could hear the shrug. That. <laughs> so now I have to be giving credit. I, I have to be the spokesperson for all of us. <laughs> the final piece in the program uh, is one that I uh, I wanted to write on the death of my grandparents, which uh, uh, occurred, they, they passed away within just over a year of each other. And uh, they used to collect mechanical eight-day clocks. And I inherited one of them. Uh, around the same time that, for Christmas, Caitlin bought for me uh, a steel tongue drum, which you heard Dave play in our improvisation, which is why we were trying to find a key that worked with it. It's, it's a convex uh, steel drum. Unlike the Caribbean concave steel drum, which has a very brash sound, this one has a very warm and mellow sound. Um, and it is generally a novelty item. It's meant to sound good no matter what you do. There are two, it's, it's two to multiple scales. Caitlin uh, custom picked two that they offered that would sound, that she thought would sound good to me. And I had this crazy idea, and this was actually a separate idea. I thought that I might write a piece for it that was actually challenging and required uh, the technique of a, of a percussionist, a trained percussionist. And then one day I heard one of these clocks chiming, this clock that we heard chiming, as I was playing with the drum, and it sounded so similar. I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to write a piece uh, about my grandparents um, using the chiming clocks as a, uh, as a motive, as, a, as an element of the piece. So I, I, wrote, a, um, I wrote a poem. And I'm, I would not purport to be a poet of anything other than silly rhyming limericks, which I'm very good at writing. But free-form sentimental poetry is a new venture for me. I don't know if it's good, but it is meaningful to me. Um, this poem is one big allegory for 
uh, my grandparents as the chimes of this house. Um, golden house because, I don't really know, I imagine this house um, in which my grandparents partially raised me as golden, possibly because of my grandmother's preference for gilded um, decor, um, possibly because the clock's all chime in the truck, which I hear is a golden key, uh, or, or around that shop, one of them is like a really black G. But um, I, uh, so I wrote this poem and, and uh, to, to relate the chimes to my grandparents and, um, and the other instruments to the music that sort of grew around them. Um, one notable uh, theme that you're going to hear is the Westminster chime. Uh, would you play it for me? A, a primary motive that is based on this thing. Would you actually not play? But uh, you know, even just another Oh yeah, uh, right here.
Thank you so much for listening to Sean and Dave Make Music this month. If you like the show, please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe, tell your friends, and be sure to tune in next month for part two with Illumin. We'll have plenty more great live music. We've got some flute and, d- and drum miniatures, improvisations with Illumin, and premiere recordings of new works of mine and Dave Trums. See you then.